Good morning. My name is Brian, and it's a real privilege to get to open up John chapter 4 with you today. And I want to begin with a fable about a king and a poisoned well. There once was a wise king who ruled over a vast kingdom. He was feared for his might and loved for his wisdom. Now in the heart of the city... There was a well with pure and crystal clear waters from which the king and all the inhabitants drank. When all were asleep, three witches entered the city and poured seven drops of a strange liquid into the well. They said that henceforth all who drink this water shall go mad. The next day all the people drank of the water, but not the king. And the people began to say, the king is mad and has lost his reason. Look how strangely he behaves. We cannot be ruled by a madman, so he must be dethroned. The king grew very fearful, for his subjects were preparing to rise against him. He had a difficult choice, risk being destroyed by his beloved subjects or drink from the poisoned well and become mad just like them. You have a choice as well. It's all about which well will you choose? Because if you drink from one well, like a beautiful tree from the ground, you'll spring up. But if you drink from the other, it'll rot your roots and kill your fruits. And so the choice is, which cup? And I'm telling you that the well that's easy to get to It is full of poison. The one that's only a short walk away, if you look into our culture, you see people who've been poisoned by a well. You see anger and pride and selfishness and racism, and you see all of that. Some of you don't have to even look at the newspaper. Maybe today you're thinking, I see that in my own family, in my own life. Years ago, I was overseas at a camp. There was about 50 of us at this camp. And by day two, 40 of us were terribly sick to our stomach. I I don't want to gross you out, but just to give you an idea, they were cleaning out the bathrooms with a hose, just washing them out. That's the memory I have. And uh, the health department actually came and was trying to figure out why are 40 out of 50 people sick here so quickly. And they were investigating, and they found the problem. It was the well. It was full of, like, bugs and grime and disgusting, and it was poisoning us. And we quit drinking from that well, and everybody got well quickly. We were all fine. It was all the well. And if you drink from a poisonous well, it's going to come back to bite you. So in Jesus' day, there was a land between Judea and Galilee, and it was called Samaria. And Samaria was almost like a dirty word. It was at least a a word that was loaded with baggage. It's almost like if you heard the word Gaza Strip or Ferguson, the kind of word that has lots of weight to it, that has history to it, that has some problems to it. And the Jews hated the Samaritans. You see, seven centuries earlier, when Assyria came and attacked the Israelites, they took off into exile. They hauled off the best and brightest from there. But they left some of the farmers and lower class, and then foreigners came in as well and intermingled and intermarried, and soon they shared families, and they mixed faith and morality 
and it all became kind of jumbled. And when the Jews were released from exile and they came back, they looked and they saw these Samaritans there, and they hated them. They looked at them as half-breed, as not good enough, as ethnically impure, morally impure, religiously impure, lower class, nothing about them they desired. And so when a good Jew would go from Galilee to Judea, he would walk all the way around Samaria, even though it was further, because he didn't want to be with those people, maybe even wanted to avoid the potential violence that could take place. The Samaritans built their own temple, their own place to worship, but a Jewish leader came and they actually destroyed the whole thing. So when you think about Samaria, think about history, think about prejudice, think about baggage, think about conflict, think about racism, think about all of that together, and you've got Samaria. So when Jesus came to Samaria, there was some history there. We would be wise to know our history. You know, the, the root word for ignorance is ignore. And Sometimes we almost use it as an excuse, like, well, I'm just kind of ignorant about that. And that may be true. But sometimes we're ignorant about things because we have chosen to ignore them, such as the mistreatment of people and oppression. And for many of the Samaritans, they had been ignored for a very long time, generation after generation after generation. And so Jesus knew it was unacceptable for a Jew to come and talk with a Samaritan because Samaritans weren't worthy of that. And Jesus knew that it was unacceptable for a man to come and speak to a woman because women weren't really worthy of that. And Jesus knew that it was unacceptable for a righteous, holy rabbi to come speak to a very famous sinner. People knew about her sin because sinners don't deserve that. So when Jesus came, what do you think he did? If you can look with me in John chapter 4, I just want us to ask you to really engage in this text. This text has so much truth that we need to hear in 2017. I just want to ask you to lean into every word because there's so much in this story that we need to hear. I'm going to begin reading in John chapter 4, verse 3. So, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will be, become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, 
give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus said, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus is the living water. And if you want to look at your sermon page, There's three things we see about living water just really clearly in this text. And number one is this. Living water obliterates cultural barriers. When Jesus sits down uh, to, to visit with her and she comes and he begins this conversation, she's going like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're not supposed to have this conversation. We're not supposed to share this talk, this moment, this place. We can't be together. It would be better if you just did your thing like the Jews and you just kind of go around and ignore us and I'll be here. It'd be better just to kind of go along with what culture tells us to do. We can't share this water. What is it about prejudice and water? We can't share this well to we can't share this water fountain. And water sources remain a sticking point in our culture. By sitting down to visit with her, unconcerned about the cultural taboos, Jesus communicated something to her. He said, you matter. You're valuable. Samaritan lives matter. Not Samaritan lives only, but Samaritan lives too. Because for generation after generation, the Samaritans had been told, your life doesn't matter. You're nothing You're a nobody. You're a half-breed, not even fully human, certainly not fully Jew. God doesn't like you, and I don't like you either. But Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh, your life matters. See, for her, it needed to be personal. She needed to hear that from him. You matter. It's one thing to say, hey, anybody who wants to come sit by my well, that's cool. But it's another thing, and what Christ requires of his followers is to go to those wells and to sit by people who are different than us, to sit by people who come from different backgrounds, to sit by people who may be very far from God, to sit by people who are way older or way younger, make a lot more money or a lot less money, but to sit by those people because Jesus said to us, go into all of the world. That's all of the ethnos all of the ethnic groups, you go there. You don't just sit in your little well and wait for somebody to come find you, but you actually go and you seek these kinds of people. It's a beautiful thing here in Tulsa that God has brought so much of the world 
to us nearby. I can eat at five restaurants and hear five different languages within a walk of this building. That's pretty cool. God has brought so many people to us, but he says, don't just be settled where you are, but go. How in the world did Sunday mornings become such a segregated hour? It must break God's heart. Because we're only in the chapter 4 here of John, and he's already crushing, obliterating cultural barriers, ones that we've re-resurrected. How did it become that way? But Jesus says, I have something new for you. We've got to obliterate these things. And you know, Jesus wasn't about obliterating cultural things just to be mean or just to to try to throw people off balance, it's because he loved people. And if you love people and you love people a lot more than you love tradition or cultural boundaries, you'll step on a lot of cultural boundaries because your love is the big thing that exceeds all of that. Later this spring, we're going to dive deep into a study about the biblical mandate for reconciliation. And that includes crossing ethnic lines, generational lines, socioeconomic boundaries that are put in place. And we're just going to look really deeply at what Scripture says because it's really clear to us. And I hope that you can be here this spring as we dive into that right after Easter. Because this church is committed to reconciliation. And we know that we have a long ways to go and a lot to learn but we believe God has commanded us. And to be real honest with you, it's not very easy. If you want to grow a church quickly, make sure everybody looks just like you and has the same experience, and that way you can craft music and children's programs and everything else in the building that's all just geared for one certain type of people. But the biblical mandate is reconciliation and love and caring for people who may come from very different backgrounds than you. And so we're going to dive in this spring to that. And I'll tell you this, as a church... On behalf of the leadership, we say to you, we're so glad that you are here, and we want to ask you to be part of this with us. We need everybody to lean into this issue and to be looking for ways to engage with people different than you, people in this church, people outside of this church. When I was a kid, I got to go to the beach a couple times, and one of my favorite things was to build a sandcastle. And when I say build a sandcastle, I didn't actually care about the sandcastle. I like to build a huge wall and moat around it. I left the more detailed work of the actual sandcastle to more skilled people. I wasn't very good at that. But they would build that, and then I would build this humongous wall and then this moat system that would take the water off into these deep reservoirs. And then we would wait for high tide to come. And as high tide would come, the first few waves, it worked perfectly. You know, the water would hit the moat and would go into my little reservoirs real deep. And then it would get past the moat, and it would start hitting the wall. And then finally, there would be one great big wave that would come, and it would just obliterate all of my work and my walls that were waist high and the sandcastle, and everything was just gone. And after about two or three more waves, we were like, now where did we build it? We can't even tell anymore. When you think about what Jesus did with cultural barriers, think about that sand wall. Because if you put a wall in front of Jesus loving somebody, he will run right through it. And our culture does that too often. Living water obliterates cultural barriers. And secondly, living water heals. When Jesus comes and begins this amazing conversation with this woman, uh, they begin talking about water, and uh, she's confused. But Jesus says, why don't you go get your husband? And she probably looks down and says, I, I, I don't have a husband. 
And Jesus says, yeah, I know. You've had five, and now you're living with a guy who's not your husband. You kind of have a men's ministry. (laughs) The truth is that in that day, it's very possible that she was being used and discarded over and over and over again and had no control over the situation. That's how women were often treated there and how they're still treated in way too many places on our planet. But I imagine that she had something to do with part of it. It at least seems like her soul maybe has been hardened a little bit. Perhaps as, this, as her life went on, she became more bitter and finally just gave up and now she was living with someone who wasn't her husband and she knew that was a sin. She knew that was outside God's plan for marriage and so she was probably feeling this shame. But do you notice what Jesus does? He doesn't go anywhere. He stays. Even after he, you know, says, I I know all about your sin. Some of you are sitting here, and right now you're thinking about the sin in your life. Maybe even a stronghold in which Satan has taken hold of you in some way, and it feels like you can't get away from that sin. And I want to tell you something. Jesus already knows about it. And if you tell him, he's not going to turn and run away from you. I know that's your fear because other people in your life have run away from you when they found out. But Jesus will stay right next to you, seated next to you, and he'll say something like, it doesn't really matter where you worship. It matters who you worship. It matters that you worship me in the spirit and truth. You see, you can... You can say, well, I worship this or that, or I I worship God on my own terms, and Jesus says, that doesn't work for me because I am the living water, so worship me on my terms. You come to me. Let me heal you. Let me forgive you. Let me give you this water that will just wash out all the toxins that you've been drinking all through your life. Let me bring healing to you. She had six guys who could do nothing for her. But man number seven she meets, he can change her life. One day, Elisha saw Naaman, the Syrian. He was an important man, but he was dying from leprosy. And uh, Elisha says, God will heal you. Just go down to the river, dip yourself there in the river seven times, and, and you will be healed. And he says, that is stupid. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to go down into the river. That's silly. It's ridiculous. And his, his buddies say, like, hey, maybe, maybe you should try this, dude. What else are you going to do? Why don't you give it a shot? It, it, it's not, you're not able to heal yourself. Nobody else can heal you. Why not just listen to what this prophet is saying and see if God will heal you? And he does. He goes down to the river. He gets dunked. And he's healed by God. And maybe for some of you, you've been saying, what? Need to get baptized? I don't, I don't need to say yes to Jesus. I'll just kind of follow him on my own a little bit when I want to. I'll come to church every now and then. And God is saying, follow me on my terms. Last Sunday, our friend Ernie Hill listened to Dave's sermon walked down this aisle once things were over and said to his good friend Dave, said, well, you got me. I said, well, he got me. 
Dave and Ernie had been studying about baptism for some time. And last Sunday, God got them. And on Tuesday, I got to be here and watch Ernie be baptized because God got him. God got a hold of him. God does that to us. And follow God on his terms. You don't even have to go down to a river somewhere. I mean, we got a baptistry right here. If you'd rather do a river, that's fine. That's cool. But follow God on his terms. And if, if you would want to study about baptism, we really encourage that. And we love to meet with people and get with people. And if you want to just mark on your communication card, can I study about this with somebody? Some, one of our leaders would be glad to just sit down and visit with you and study with you. Um, maybe there's a small group leader, class leader you want to talk to. Please, please do that. Living water heals. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus is going through Samaria, and he sees 10 guys with leprosy, and he says, head over here and you'll all be healed, and they do, and they're all healed, but only one comes back and says thank you. And when he comes back and says thank you, Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Those other guys, they were healed, but you really drank the water. Because when Jesus saves us, he doesn't just want to save us from our sins and then say, now go do whatever you want to do. He wants to save us from our ungratefulness and our pride and our selfishness and our desire to make God in our own image instead of making ourselves in his image. Living water obliterates cultural barriers. Living water heals, and living water is meant to be shared. Knowing that she is a Samaritan, she's a woman, she's a sinner, does not keep Jesus from going to her. In fact, I think it's why he went there in the first place. Because Jesus said, hey, it's not the well who need the doctor, it's the sick. I've come to go to the sinners, to the people who really need me. Living water is meant to be shared. Later in the chapter, the disciples uh, come back. They had been off uh, trying to buy some food. And they come back and they see Jesus talking to her. And there's like this weird, awkward moment where they're afraid to say anything. But they're all thinking the same thing. Um, what's he doing with her? They don't even acknowledge her. She ends up going off, and then they say to Jesus, here, we got some food for you. And he's like, I, I've, I've already had something. What? Where'd you? Where'd you? And they're thinking, where, where did you get food? And Jesus says, I got some food that is way better than anything you could ever offer. You see, I am living water, and I am the bread of life, that I can fill you up with something that food and water never could. I can give you life. And they're a little bit confused by all of this. And Jesus just said, listen, guys, I had some soul food, okay? <laughs> it's in me. And the woman goes off into the town, and the text says she, she begins just telling everybody, hey, I met this guy. He told me everything I ever did. He's, some, he, he's a prophet. He's, he said he's the Christ. You should come listen to him. And the town comes, and they begin to listen to Jesus. And they say, can you stay and Jesus says, sure. And he stays a couple days teaching them and, and, and loving them and caring for them. And by the time he leaves the town, it says, many people believed. In fact, they were saying, now we believe based on what he has said, not just based on what she said about him. And when we lead people to Jesus, the whole goal is to get them into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, not just taking it for what we say, but actually introducing people to Christ. 
not just introducing people to us who can tell them about Christ. We want to connect people with the living God who wants to work in their lives and to speak to them and to listen to them and to care for them. Living water is meant to be shared. So how much training did the woman have before she set out on this evangelistic tour? None. She doesn't go to seminary. She doesn't even go to a weekend retreat or one Sunday school class. She meets Jesus, and she runs off into town telling everybody. And by two, two days later, many people in the town believed. So if, well, let me say this. Training is important. The Bible talks a lot about it. We should keep growing and understanding and learning and practicing how we can build up people uh, to know Jesus Christ and to follow him. But with that said, if this woman had only known Jesus for a few moments before she begins telling people about Jesus, what's your excuse? Because I hear that excuse a lot. Well, I probably need to learn a little bit more before I can tell somebody. Yeah, you should learn more, but go ahead and start telling people. You don't have to tell them a lot. Just say, hey, listen, I met Jesus, and he changed my life. Can I introduce you to him? Can I tell you about him? It's not all that complicated. And we make all of these excuses, and we're not ready, and we feel guilty. You think this woman had a little bit of guilt to overcome? The people in the town know her situation. They probably know. Maybe she's even telling her five exes. I don't know. People know, but she's still telling them. Don't try to dam up the water because it'll get stagnant in your life. You'll end up toxic if you don't share the living water with others. It comes in you and needs to rush out of you and keeps flowing. Share the living water. The fable of the king ends this way. After feeling the great pressure to drink from the poison well, like all of the people had done, the king felt overwhelmed. So that evening, he ordered a golden goblet to be filled from the well, and he drank deeply. The next day, there was great rejoicing among the people, for the beloved king had finally regained his reason. The end. A very sad fable. But in your life, culture our world will not encourage you typically to drink from Christ well. It'll say, no, this is fine. This is normal. Greed is good. You need more stuff and more things. You need all of this. It's okay to hate some people. They deserve it. The culture will tell you to drink from the poisoned well. Jesus warned us about it. So how in the world, in our culture, are we going to drink from the well, to drink the living water? How are we going to be able to, to obliterate cultural barriers and be healed ourselves from all of our stuff and then to be able to share that with others? Dr. Jerry Taylor is a distinguished pref professor at Abilene Christian University. And when he speaks, it's this booming African-American voice that fills the room. He, he leads some retreats and conferences, though, that aren't very loud. 
because he speaks into the issue of racial reconciliation quite a bit. And at these retreats and conferences, the main thing that he does is he has people sit in silence and solitude with prayer and scripture. Not many lectures. Why? Because he knows the truth that the only way we can really be healed from all the poisons we've ingested is to drink deeply of the living water, to spend time with our Father, to pray and to listen and be quiet, to drink deeply, to dwell in the well is what we need. So what do you thirst for? Riches, fame, comfort, but you always want more, more things, more time, more stuff. It's always too few, but there's a different song sung in Psalm 42. God, my soul thirsts for you. Drink from Jesus' well. Dwell in the well. Don't fixate on the madness of this world. Drop the poison glass because it will wither you like August grass in the Oklahoma sun. You need the sun who can fill your heart. You need the water who heals, who sets you free, who makes you see. You need the water who, even when life burns like a hot coal, allows you to sing, it is well with my soul. God could have written many things in the closing paragraphs of your Bible, but he chose to speak to you as a loving husband invites his wife. Revelation says, whoever is thirsty, let him come and take the free gift of the water of life. You can drink from one well, and like a beautiful tree from the ground, you'll spring up. But if you drink from the other, it will rot your roots and kill your fruits. So the choice is yours. Which cup? Let's pray. God, there's a lot of us who have taken gulp after gulp of the poisoned well. And we need you to heal us. We need you to save us. We need living water. We need you, Jesus, to save us from ourselves, from our sin, from this, all the things culture throws at us. God, we pray that we can be healed and we pray that we can just obliterate the cultural barriers in front of us that are keeping us from loving people and that we can share the living water with others. God, I pray everyone here would choose your cup. In Jesus' name, amen.